close that. Chair, medical staff reports. Yeah. Okay. Um, as soon as we get a recorder, um, can we just go on? Or do we need to wait for Rana? Okay, uh, let's start with the medical staff reports. And then um, I guess Dr. Kelly Ballard first. Okay. So from um, the MEC meeting this past month, we had um, four major things that uh, we can report on. We had a presentation on the uh, clinical standardization for excellence. Of, during that discussion, we were not only updated on wave one, but we discussed and approved having a system-wide P&T and a system-wide formulary. Um, P&T stands for uh, Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee. Uh, we also um, had uh, an update and a revision on the Clinical Practice Committee, the way that's going to be run, which is the committee that currently vets all the policies and procedures. And it's going to be really overhauled with the new um, infrastructure that we're building. It's going to be twice a month. It's going to be exhaustive. We're going to really do a major overhaul to the policies and procedures uh, in this next year, I think. It's very encouraging. Did we, did, are you sitting on that now? Did I you? think I am. Yes. <laughs> in your wisdom. And Dr. Um, Inc. And I worked with and culture at that committee. Right. And then eventually, um, Dr. Hussein, Tanvir Hussein, who is the VP of quality, will call chair that council with me. Dr. Hussein hasn't joined. He will, he will be joining on December 11th. Uh, we'll send a communication today or tomorrow about his appointment. Uh, he, uh, he is a physician who will be the VP of quality, and he will be co-chairing this clinical practice council uh, with, uh, with uh, Kinsey. And what is the goal? So the goal is uh, related to uh, uh, order sets and standards work. When the electronic health records uh, is going to be implemented, we'll have a lot of workflows and standards that needs to be built. And we want to standardize it system-wide. So we want a delegation from the medical executive committee to this clinical practice council, which will have a representation from the three MECs to uh, approve those, those standards. So it's not really exactly policy, but it's a standard. So let's say a patient is admitted uh, or, or signed into the emergency department into our three hospitals. There are three ways to do it. There are three ways how the nurse documents. There are three ways how we want to have one way once we implement electronic health records, and we want a delegation from the MEC about approving this process. So will we not as a board then see, uh, until you have finished your work, other policies, more policies coming forward on the standards? So, so those are standards, not really policies. Sometimes I might impinge on certain policies that needs to be amended or changed, mm -hmm. but those are standards. There are lots of uh, clinical practice improvement that we do uh, on ongoing without having to change policies. So what will happen in terms of what you see at the le board level, those standards, like for example, there are 300, 400, we call them foundational workflows at EPIC has built by working with several organizations throughout the nation. They are going to give it to AHS, say, hey, here, this is the best one we have. Go, tell us how we want it to be built. Then we have to get together and say, this is how we want it to be built, and agree among three MECs that this is how it is going to work. So what will happen is that this CPC will agree on this standard and will present it to the MEC, and then it will come to the board. Uh, so, but in the short run, you're still going to be seeing policies. You will still see the, yeah. yeah, you will still see the policies in the short run. It will still go through CPC because it's the same council that is that you are getting the reports right now from because they go to MEC and then they, they come to QPSC. So that same council is going to be enhanced 
to include what um, Kassam just said, to make sure that they also have the authority to approve, review and approve those sta clinical standards. Sorry, Kelly. On, back to you. The, the next item is the department chair updates. We have three ongoing. The chair of psychiatry, there's a candidate that's currently in process. A recommendation has been made for a chair of um, maternal maternal and child health. That one has been um, decided on by the committee and has been presented to Dr. Jamaluddin and Mr. Finley. There's also a Department of Surgery um, search that's going on that continues to be open based on uh, previous recommendations from both AHS and um, UCSF. That will close on the 31st of December and then we'll proceed with interviews after that. We had a medical staff meeting that was the first ever for all three med staffs. It was very well attended and very well received. Um, the food and wine were delicious. We had a speaker from Stanford who spoke about physician and caregiver wellness, which and it was a phenomenal talk. So I felt like overall it was a very um, unifying experience and kind of set a tone for how we're going to proceed as a system. Many of us were there. And so it's, you know. Um, Can I ask a question about that? Sure. From the from the provider's perspective about that presentation on burnout, um, I mean, how, because uh, it was pointed out by the presenter that the, the fact that the board, member, board members were there was, was significant, that we should take this really seriously. And I'm just curious what we can do at our level to, to help support providers in addressing that. Because I, I was moved by it. Keep, keep the conversation alive. You know, just, just done. Allow it to continue to be something on your radar, and by it being on your radar, then it stays on the executive's radar. And, and I'm hoping that we've got a groundswell of interest on the provider and, and clinical application side that we can continue the conversation. So if everybody's on board, I think it's going to be it's going to be a, a big shift in what we're able to do for our clinicians and clinical practice folks. Okay. Just keep it on the radar. Keep it on the radar. Just keep the conversation going, and it'll evolve into yeah. a good thing. Keep supporting. Um, the wellness task force along the same lines. Dr. Hearn um, has done a phenomenal job getting that off the ground. We're, we're meeting monthly and sometimes more than monthly. Uh, and we've already gotten several conversations about um, how to implement programs. We've got a burnout survey that we are trying to get more and more um, response rate on, as you know, with surveys, it's sometimes difficult, especially if it's burned out physicians trying to take it from burnout. So, <laughs> so we're, we're moving forward with that, trying to get that task force to implement those practices. The um, mass casualty response team report um, revealed that there was a decontamination tent drill. It's the second real drill we've had this year. Having been here for 14 years almost, it's the first year I've seen two-wheel drills, so I'm beyond excited. We learned a tremendous amount from that drill and have many projects now as being planted and, and seeded by the experience we had that drill. So I think 2018 is going to see a, a huge exponential growth in that, um, in that area of our ability to respond as a health system to a mass casualty or, or a tremendous medical surgical surge. Um, with regard to your comment, actually, Dr. and um, Trustee DeVries' point, I was also at the, the meeting. And having these drills, it, it, it seems like it's a good way to um, get to foster teamwork in, in a lot of ways and also to, to think about, you know, we think about it, and doctors I'm sure think about it much more than lay people, but think about how what will happen since it's happening elsewhere when it, when it eventually happens here. So I, I, I think that's great. And I also, um, to Joe's comment from the presentation from the Stanford um, physician and, and professor, I'm glad that we're moving and doing this right now because we're going to implement EHR, electronic health record. Um, and physicians are going to have a lot to do to make that successful. So I'm um, making sure that, that, every, uh, that the physicians are, are on board and supportive and, and that we're addressing the, their needs, um, stress needs, and their needs for um, to be comfortable with the new technology is is really critical. I think. Totally agree. 
So, and I'm hoping um, that sometime when you're ready, Kelly, you will bring your uh, mass casualty preparation planning to the to this committee because I think that the trustees would really be interested in what you're doing. I would love but, to do that. And I asked you earlier, and you said you weren't quite ready yet, so I know that. I'm ready for prime time. Okay. Are we uh, ready uh, um, to move on to Joel? Sure. So uh, actually, we just had our, our MEC meeting uh, yesterday, and uh, we also uh, talked about clinical standardization for excellence. And uh, we uh, went ahead with the uh, system-wide P&T committee, and uh, with the caveat that uh, we the uh, designated um, physician representative from San Angelo Hospital will be required to uh, submit the report uh, to uh, the uh, MEC, local MEC, for final approval. Uh, that's just, uh, and uh, in, in a sense that uh, the PNT committee uh, really hasn't changed. It's just uh, going from local San Diego Hospital to a system-wide and still the process of approving and uh, still should stay uh, the same. That's uh, our feeling on that. And uh, then we also, uh, uh, Dr. Jamaldin also presented a clinical practice uh, council charter. And we uh, just want to make sure that we get our local expert uh, from uh, the community hospital have a, have a say in the uh, development of the uh, order sets or the uh, protocol or the process of the EHR. And, uh, and we also uh, express concern because this is a uh, once every two weeks uh, committee and it's quite uh, time consuming for a um, uh, community uh, based um, physician to be, able to be able to devote those time and to give up say an afternoon to on the meeting. So we uh, recommend that there should be a, some kind of reimbursement um, Product uh, process or reimbursement uh, uh, strategy to uh, allow the physician to take off the time to participate in in this uh, council. And uh, the next uh, big thing are the transition uh, plan in San Diego Hospital. Uh, as you uh, we are aware of, there is a radiology uh, transition starting on midnight on December 6th, and Dr. Yasumoto was there uh, on site and to uh, brief us on the transition plan and give us the uh, contact number and uh, the plan A, plan B uh, for uh, the transition. And we expect you be a lot of work, but uh, it should be a, um, Smooth. This whole is won't go as as planned. And the other uh, big concern is about the uh, contract uh, termination with CEP. Uh, the currently the hospital uh, contracting group for uh, emergency department uh, coverage uh, will terminate effective of uh, January 31st. So there are several uh, members of our MEC express uh, concern about the short timeline and the recruit, recruit, the recruitment and credential privileging of emergency physician and uh, potential impact on uh, both quality of patient care and the hospital relationship with the community. And the uh, hospital leadership and um, chief of staff and uh, chief medical officer uh, also assured that all steps will be taken to ensure a smooth transition without compromising staffing or quality of patient care. So did that did that make I, I, I'm confused. Are you uh, concerned about it or was your concern um, were you reassured? Were you reassured? It's still early in the planning stage. So uh, we raised our concern and uh, Jamaldin has said there will be an update uh, okay. in the history because uh, all this process just went in uh, just a few weeks ago and uh, still uh, pretty much a moving piece of puzzle. 
and uh, they were concerned raised, and uh, there uh, we got assurance uh, that we will do our best to ensure smooth transition. But uh, it's still uh, still a lot of a lot of work to be done. Okay. Okay. Any other questions for Dr. Chu? Elpidio. Okay. Good afternoon. Um, so our um, uh, MEC met two weeks ago and had basically similar concerns with your um, San Leandro. Uh, we um, discussed um, the um, ER transition um, and expressed again our concern about how this will happen and hoping that it will not um, impact um, clinical care for the patients as a, a new set of ER physicians will be um, coming in to serve our community. Um, we um, were saddened by, you know, losing some of our, you know, uh, established ER physicians who have helped Alameda over the past year. Some of them have served 15 to 25 years um, in the hospital, mm. um, but they, you know, they've assured that they will work with, you know, whatever transition the, uh, you know, AHS plans to do, and kind of show them the ropes of how um, it's done in, in the workflow is at, at Alameda, but. It, it's a big concern for for us, um, knowing that you know this is a a, uh, a frontline uh, service that will be greatly impacted. Um, um, uh, um, um, in terms of um, some specialty follow-up, uh, we've also discussed again with um, with the administration that you know there are continued lack of limited um, uh, specialties for urology, podiatry, and GI services, and. You know, um, We've been updated with, with the plans um, on, on how this is going to be uh, addressed moving forward, as well as um, our primary care uh, clinic is also uh, discussed. Uh, in terms of um, clinical standardizations, uh, we've been updated with the different work groups that have been uh, going on, and you know some of our physicians have you know, tried to uh, participate um, in these work groups with the order sets. Um, the uh, system-wide um, uh, pharmacy and therapeutics was also discussed. Uh, the um, medical executive committee at Alameda Hospital um, expressed uh, concerns with the workflow, and um, the, we've had several discussions with um, Dr. Jamaldine and the charity support group on how this is going to move forward. Um, at present, we decided to keep our local PMT. Um, we support the, um, the system-wide PMT, uh, formulary standardization and workflow standardization, but uh, with the same um, uh, uh, sentiment that um, you know, the um, medical executive committee at Alameda uh, still wants to be able to you know, review um, policies that are coming through um, and, and approve them. Um, with uh, regards to the uh, clinical uh, practice. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't understand that concern. Could you explain that a little bit more? So, um, I know we're running out of time, but yeah, so what's the point of you guys? We've got a few more minutes to, um, to one of the segment. One of the essential functions of, of, of organized medical staff is to be able to review policies, procedures, order sets that um, are affecting patient care. And the um, MC at Alameda um, feel that they are not willing to delegate uh, that uh, authority to um, the system-wide PNP or the clinical practice council, we still will be able to want to review some of the content. We understand that around 80 to 90 percent are you know, standardized, but I think the the um, idea of what about the variations? How are they going to be addressed? And is the MEC going to have any input in terms of decision making as to what these um, uh, policies and procedures are, and, and, and there's ongoing discussion with you know with um, how this is going to be organized, um, and so that's why you know this um, these two charters have not been approved. Uh, so the policies we saw today that had that had gone through 
all the three MECs. Doesn't work for you? No, that's how it is right now. Um, they work through all the MECs. What my understanding is with the Clinical Practice Council, it, it goes through the MEC, but the MEC um, delegates the authority to approve these order sets, these policies and procedure to, this, to the Clinical Practice Council. So it goes through, so that's where, you know, we need clarification on. It goes through, do we review it? Do we approve it or not? Because the language on the charter says um, that, you know, we, the MEC delegates that authority to the Clinical Practice Council, which the feeling of the Alameda Hospital MEC is that, you know, they have the final authority based on, you know, what um, our role as MEC, you know, the, for the organized medical staff is. We do not see it as delegating to the clinical practice council. Okay, I, I'll have to talk to you offline because I'm still not quite certain, but thank you for, I think I'm a little bit, thank you, I, I got a little more information. I think, I mean, what it sounds to me that there's a certain giving up of power that is a little, causes some concern. But I imagine since you're all, you know, highly educated professionals that it's very rare that there's going to be a conflict in what policy you approve and what the next board up, you know, takes on, right? I mean, yes. Um, it's really my right. understanding is that for the medical executive committee at each local hospital, presents approved policies uh, relating to patient care to the board of trustees. Mm -hmm. So you rely on us to make sure that yes. these policies with regards to patient care are reviewed by physicians. And so for us to say it goes to the clinical practice council is where some of the majority of the MEC members of Alameda have questions, how is this going to work? Uh, I, so the board, I guess, has not yet been instructed or brought brought around to how this, how this issue is going to change. So that probably might be something we put on an agenda yeah, item sure, for right. future so that we understand particularly since you since the law has us approving the policies we ought to know what the process is before it came to comes to us Absolutely. and so if you're changing the process at which you guys have to work through with the various MECs in your organization, but but you ought to bring us along so that we are not just stamping something we have no idea what the process was or where it went through or any of those things. So at some point you're going to have to give us a sense of this new structure you're intending to do. I agree. I think it's a good idea. Right. Yeah. And this is a minor semantic issue but it's profound for me I don't feel I want to have um, it say we approve the policies I think we need to say we approve the process by which you have submitted them because I'm still very nervous that it appears as if we've gone through each of those policies. But that's the law. I understand that. I understand. But the semantics around this really does concern me because this just even raised the bar higher. I feel for what the medical staff is going through. I really do. And I would like us to be very careful how we frame what our approval process looks like. I, I'm. I'm nervous about that. So. Let, let me just clarify a few points, if you don't mind, uh, Dr. Zorthian. Uh, one, it is not really the policy. We're talking about standards and work orders. So if they impinge on policies, it has to go through the due process. It's really delegating authority for this council to approve work standards. This is, this is what we are doing. And it is uh, uh, like 
uh, it's not really uh, rewriting all the policies. No, it's delegating authority for this body, for this council, which is equally represented from the three medical staff and will ensure the equal representation to approve the work standards when it comes to standardization. When it comes to standardization, uh, I mean, it's absolutely true. When you talk about standardization, it's extremely important, but you cannot standardize everything in healthcare. It is probably 80%. The 20% variability is going to remain there. It's going to be variability in the same organization between one physician and one physician, one patient and one patient. However, we need to have a launching platform. When the electronic health record is going to be implemented, we cannot go over three medical staff to get approval every time we have a work standard. We really need to have a launching platform. Yeah. Then once we launch the electronic health records in a standardized way, it's going to be, it's going to uh, reveal to us a lot of things that we don't know right now. Mm -hmm. So we need to have an organized uh, governance to make changes in a very effective and nebulous way. So that's at a high level, the, but I understand the concerns and we are not going to change any policy. The CPC will not change any policy. In case a standard impinges on the policy, it has to go through the due process. I just want to clarify this point. Mm -hmm. I have another point I'd like to clarify, if you don't mind, but... Uh, uh, yeah, the ear. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Trustee Lawrence has a question in her eyes. In my eyes, and you can tell right away. I, I suppose the question I'm asking is, um, I have the policies over the years that have been coming to us. Right. There have been in there procedural things that look to me that need to be standardized. Right. But we have labeled them as policies. Right. So I think that's where my, my confusion is, right. is how do we take those things that are clearly standard medical pro processes right. out of our, pol our policy realm mm -hmm. and move them. So that might be something that occurs first, that mm -hmm. you take those things out so that the board can understand. Because we have approved these things that are clearly standards in in processes for medical care. Right. And we've called them policies. Right. But, but it's not necessarily that simple. There's a lot of those policies which are mandated either by Joint Commission standards, CMS, you know, conditions of participation, state law, federal law. And I, I appreciate that the board might look at them or certain trustees may look at them as something other than what they would characterize as a policy. We're required to have a policy which covers that particular sub, you know, subject or item. So that's why they come to the board as a policy because essentially every one of those, there's something that requires us to have that and to have it in place and to have it approved by the board. So, uh, Can I suggest that we sure. schedule a Sure. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Big discussion on this. Can I have a small comment about the situation with the CEP? Yes. Just to clarify to the board, uh, the uh, contract uh, expired at the end of October. Prior to the expiration, uh, we could not reach an agreement. But the problem is, I mean, we have utmost respect for this organization, the CEP, and absolutely for the physicians. It was that what has happened is that our ED volume has changed in volume, has decreased in volume, and that has changed in payer mix. So CEP has been losing money in the current structure that they have, and uh, our cost has become very high. So we couldn't reach an agreement. I mean, it became like extremely high. There are some supplemental funds if we uh, enroll the physicians under Alameda Health Partners that we can get as a safety net, and then we'll mitigate uh, like this this cost. Uh, and uh, you know, there are other issues. So we are currently on a daily work with Alameda Health Partners to have transition plan that I will share with the medical staff uh, very soon. Uh, about, about this issue, just uh, and, and uh, any physicians who has been serving our system, our hospitals, will ensure that they will have work with us. And this um, contract expires now with the extension on the 31st of Jan. Yeah, I mean, uh, even uh, yeah, the extension that you granted us, uh, even uh, that time, CEP, uh, you know, was reluctant to have the extension. They wanted to reassure and say, I cannot, I cannot reassure anything. I have to come to the board of trustees, and these numbers are 
you know, were very high. So that's that's the issue that I dealt with. Papiri, are you yep. complete? Okay, good. Thank you. Um, good discussion. And let me introduce Dr. Jordan Newmark and Dr. Pala Babaria. And the next um, topic on the agenda is pain committee. We just uh, very briefly introduce uh, to the board Dr. Jordan Newmark is our, I mean, to the board, the new chair of, uh, of anesthesiology. How, how long did you join us, Jordan? Four months. Four months? My God, it feels like four years. <laughs> so, uh, well, I, uh, I, I just welcome him. He has been working very hard, you know, in the anesthesia department on restructuring and reforming the very up and OR. So just in terms of context, I think many of you probably remember that earlier in the year, we undertook a redesign and restructuring project for our chronic pain clinic. We recognize that chronic pain, and especially as it overlaps with chronic opiate use, is a major issue you know, throughout our county and frankly throughout the nation. In addition, our previous pain clinic really suffered from a lot of capacity and access issues with waiting list of up to a, a thousand patients, really limiting access for the patients that needed it most. So we we're thrilled when Dr. Newmark came um, because he is pain trained and was involved with the fellowship training program at Stanford and has been serving as the medical director of the pain clinic in an interim basis while we are recruiting a permanent medical director for this position. Um, and is you know, spent the last four months, in addition to all of his other responsibilities, really taking on a comprehensive needs assessment of our current structure and a proposal for the future state structure, which he'll go over with you guys today. Okay, well, thank you everybody for having me here. And um, I see a lot of familiar faces. I want to say thank you all for being so supportive as I transition in from the outside. And uh, it's been uh, ups and downs, I'll say, but um, things are moving in a good direction. And so I'm happy to share with you some information about how we can try to construct a pain program that works for us and works for the county. So let me see how I can flip through. Yeah, there's no flipping, but I can just wing it. Um, so as Plot had mentioned, uh, chronic pain is a major public health issue, not only here in our backyards, but nationally. Um, chronic pain is a disease that isn't well understood. Um, it is sometimes associated with mental health issues, with um, addiction-related issues, um, with uh, opioids that is getting a lot of national attention. And so we want to make sure that we're serving the needs of the county and addressing these complicated, sometimes very complicated patients. Um, the gold standard of care uh, is interdisciplinary care. So that means um, partnering with primary care, with physical therapists, um, psychologists, social workers, and pulling many resources together to try to make a meaningful impact on the patients. And I think here we do have an opportunity to provide that to the patients with some restructuring and uh, some leveraging resources. Um, okay, so it looks like we have something up here that's good. So as Kevin mentioned um, earlier, the, it seemed to me that the philosophy of the pain clinic was that of what we call functional restoration, which is a bit of an older term. Functional restoration is usually used in the context of workers' compensation, where patients need highly intensive ongoing treatments for usually a mild to moderate amount of time. But some of these patients have really been, I hate to use the word stuck, but that's really the word that comes to mind right now in the pain clinic for a very long period of time, for very close thorough follow-up, which is good, but it's been limiting the access to other patients that need to be seen. Um, frankly, pain patients live on a spectrum. Some don't need that intensive level of treatment, but others do. Um, and I don't think that triazing process was effectively being managed beforehand, but I think that with the new restructure and the new philosophy of the clinic, we can do that. And so I think that will increase capacity, access, flow in and flow out of pain clinic. Um, so um, one thing I think would also be important would be to have a fully, just a full-time 1.0 FTE dedicated pain physician who's gonna spearhead this effort. Um, me personally, I'm only there half a day a week, which is not nearly enough, but it's really just to patch things along. But I think that person under the umbrella of anesthesia and under, um, and let me say most pain clinics are under the Department of Anesthesia throughout the country, so we wanna echo that here. Um, I think we can partner and build something uh, positive. I don't want to get into the weeds of this, but this is just to show that this is a flow diagram of how a future state could look like. Um, essentially, it's just trying to show you up here that 
uh, pain clinic referral would either come from a PCP or a specialist, such as orthopedics or trauma surgery, um, et cetera. Ideally, they should have a home, because if we become their home, we're going to limit the access. So they really need a person to help institute some of the recommendations that we would construct for the patient. Um, I would encourage the people that refer the patients that they do addiction screens, so that way we don't have to do it. We've been mired down by doing our own addiction assessments, and addiction and pain aren't necessarily always overlapping, and if we get mired down by the addiction piece, it kind of holds up resources and murks the waters. So I think one thing would be some education to the primary care docs and the referring physicians to try to do some of that addiction piece up front so we're not doing both. Um, so that's what this middle ground section is trying to show you. I think the other learning that we had when we did the needs assessment is that in the prior state there was a lot of overlap between how people were being treated for chronic pain and addiction and not a lot of distinction between those two diagnoses, although sometimes they can coexist in patients. Um, and that sort of lack of distinction, I think, didn't always serve the patient because we were treating everyone in the same manner and then also led to documentation and legal issues. Um, so in the current state, Dr. Amark is really you know, making the distinction about chronic pain and we're building up the addiction treatment side of our ambulatory services too. So Dr. David Tian, who's not here today, has successfully launched our buprenorphine induction clinic on K7 here on this campus and they are getting referrals for patients who are suffering from opiate and heroin addiction from the county, inducing them on buprenorphine, which is you know, a first line treatment and then working on linkages to care for that population. So that is sort of the sister clinic in the, in the future model to the pain clinic that you know, may sometimes need to see a patient may go to both of those clinics because they have both addiction and chronic pain, but we'll be able to distinguish what is the true you know, diagnosis in this patient and treat them accordingly. Perfectly stated. Trustee Johnson. But to, to that point, is it, um, it, it, given that uh, the, the attention to prescription um, overuse and the, is it, is it um, are you finding that the, the palliative clinic is, is becoming known as um, a place to, to uh, I, I'm, what am I trying to say? I, I, it, I appreciate that this has been brought up and it seems like, like um, in all of our practices, the, the prescription, the first um, thing that would be thought of uh, for palliative care would be, oh no, this person might be, we don't want to overprescribe. And the first thing that's thought of just in general medicine and oftentimes for um, people going through any kind of procedures, well, if you don't need, uh, if you don't need an opiate or you don't need a, a prescription painkiller, then we'll err on the side of, of not prescribing. So how does that fit in with, um, with palliative care and, and how uh, is this being advanced or expanded or shared throughout the, the practices? Yeah, I, I, I give you a two-part answer. Um, the mm -hmm. first part is when it comes to pain management, our goal is function, not necessarily the person's pain score on a 1 to 10 scale. So I'd rather have the patients maybe even live a bit higher, but they're functioning, they're getting back to work, they're reconditioning their body, because over the long period that will help their pain and also help their quality of life. So I would say when it comes to opioids as a treatment tool, I'd be cautious. And we want to have the conversation around function, not about what is your pain on a 1 to 10 scale. Um, so that's the first piece. The second piece I would say is when it comes to palliative end-of-life care, those patients may not have a goal of function. They may have a goal of comfort. So that's a very different conversation mm -hmm. than a patient who has not specific back pain or migraine headaches, for example. So I think those things need right. to be teased out, and sometimes that work isn't done upfront before we meet them. And so once we meet them as a pain clinic, the more that we're doing that kind of work, which I think primary care could do, that's miring us down a little bit and uh, limiting our access. So I know that we've been having discussions about outreach to primary care for some education so that they can do some of that work. We're scheduled um, for January. We're scheduled for January. So right. I think we need just some information flow to help the referring physicians understand that process. And well, let's be honest, chronic pain is complicated. This isn't something you can simply learn quickly, but we need to at least have the communications going on so we have a smarter way of utilizing the resource that we're going to build. Thanks. And these referrals come from all of the ambulatory clinics, so eventually they As well as CHCN. Okay, as well as CHCN. Thank you. Okay. Uh, is that it? Right. So, I mean, there might be more material, but I think we covered the most salient points, um, unless you guys have more specific questions for me since I'm here. I, I have kind of a random one. Please. I, I, I just have to ask, um, what about alternate uh, to opioids? 
uh, and specifically, I mean, we're in Oakland, uh, cannabinoids. I mean, are we, are we recommending those for patients? Because, you know, that's what everyone's talking about, um, except for the federal government, of course. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I would say that cannabinoids are, are a bit controversial, okay? Yeah. Um, there aren't great randomized, controlled, clean studies that are not industry-sponsored. So I'm personally very cautious when I talk about um, cannabinoids for, for chronic pain specifically. There's some better data for other conditions, perhaps for seizures, for people with chronic nausea, for mm -hmm. end-of-life cancer pain. Yeah. But for just non-specific, you know, back pain, for example, or migraine headaches, uh, I personally don't believe that the science is quite there yet, but mm -hmm. I'm open to it should it come in the future. But that being said, I mean, what we really want is just function, function, quality of life, um, you know, reconditioning, out of bed, back to work. And so um, I'm just not convinced those things are there yet. I mean, I would open if they come. Yeah, I, mean, it, it, I know the clinical trials are behind because the federal government puts such limits on those tests. But yes. I think we all know someone who suffered an injury. Like, I mean, my next door neighbor face planted on his bike. He's like a serious bicyclist and broke several bones, ended up here, went home, and the, the Vicodin or whatever else he was prescribed was awful for him. And his wife got cannabis oil and he recovered like that and he's back to work riding his bike and, and it's just it's amazing i mean again he's a short race guy he's not yeah. a stoner yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's interesting because there are there are like case reports and anecdotes out there that are promising i hear it all the time yeah yeah but, but to, for me personally i would be a little cautious starting to do that especially right off the bat i think i personally think we need more science but as the field develops sure yeah. um trustee hernandez yeah i just would like to um appreciate that you're working only half a day once a week that's really amazing um when or how soon do you think we'll have the full-time person so we have finalized um the funding stream the position's been posted we've been you know both of us collaboratively have been looking at cvs and have narrowed it down to two final candidates Great. and we're hoping to schedule in-person interviews shortly and then make a final determination so soon in the first part of next year i would hope quarter one yeah. okay. uh, thank you and this person would be an anesthesiologist yes I, that, I, that would be my preference um, and just to say a few more things about pain um, i do want this since we're talking about pain and we're expanding services i think we do need an inpatient piece because that can affect length of stay, our HCAP scores, et cetera. So we need to make sure that that's also being um, thought of. And uh, as access continues, as we grow, um, I would still like to remain in the pain clinic personally, at least a little bit, just for an access perspective, and because I also just love to do it. So I'm hoping me and that person will be there, and we'll just see how it grows and expands. But uh, I think we do have a good opportunity here. Thank you so much. So the needs assessment that you've done, how are you disseminating it to our external stakeholders with the CHCN and the county and all of them, especially we want them to be doing the addiction screening? Absolutely. Um, so the phase one of it, which occurred in June of 2017, they actually participated in the needs assessment. So we had representatives from the county, Kathleen Clannon was there, Aaron Chapman, as well as CHCN, who did a lot of the brainstorming of multiple stakeholders you know, physicians, non-physicians, inpatient, outpatient, external partners, where everyone contributed. What is your experience of our pain clinic? What's working? What's not working? There was a lot that was not working, um, which we wrote up into a final report, and that's sort of been our roadmap for the redesign. So now that we are finalizing what that roadmap looks like, we have a meeting on the books so next week, I think, week after next week, um, to communicate back to both CHCN and the county about what, you know, what is our planned roadmap for the future and how are we going to get there. Okay. Thank you so much. So thank you very much. That was great. Um, and the next item is the SBU dashboard. Or yes. The ambulatory SBU. Yes. Believe. Sorry? I have to call oh, okay. the slides. And that is you, Bob? Yeah, I'm just waiting for the slides. I don't know. Do you want to present your team during yes, this time? Absolutely. Um, so while we're waiting for the slides, as you know, we've been restructuring ambulatory. There's a lot more restructuring coming, but I am thrilled and pleased to announce that most of our core leadership team is here. Um, some have been here, some are newly promoted in the organization, and some are new to our organization. Um, so I'm hoping that they will all stand up and introduce themselves to you because you'll be hearing a lot more from all of us, uh, hopefully, over the coming year. And they do all the hard work. I just get to come present their work to you every four months. Mm -hmm. That's great. I was here a couple months ago with Captain Warner and the Vice 
Come to the mic. Come to the mic. <laughs> so I was here a few months ago, but I'm the new, um, so Catherine Horner, I'm the new vice president. Can you tell me where you came from? <laughs> so I've spent the last five years in San Francisco. Hello, uh, Rafael Vacrano, uh, director of Amb ambulatory integration and access. I come from San Mateo Medical Center, where I served for 12 years. I started as a volunteer, and I'm very proud of that. I'm Mayha Gupta. I'm the medical director for Prime in ambulatory and also a primary care doc at uh, the Highland Adult Medicine Clinic. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Kilgore. I'm director of nursing flu clinics. Okay. And I've been here 28 years. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Holly Garcia. I'm in current state. You're director of operations for ambulatory. I have not been here 28 years. I've been here nearly seven. Thank you. Um, so I know we, sorry, this is not projecting very well. Um, I know we always run out of time, so I decided to prioritize access this time since that was our hot button topic uh, from the last uh, meeting, but also have some slides on quality that we can talk through. This really is, we need to get a better slide since this is not projecting so well. Uh, but essentially for access, as you know from our main True North metric dashboard, we are tracking no-show rates very carefully for both specialty and primary care. And although we are not at target, we have seen positive trends in terms of decreased no-show rate in both primary and specialty care. Um, we have a robust plan that Catherine and others on the team have been working with our managers to do universal live reminder calls. We do have robocalls that go out and know from data that patients often hang up with the automated reminders. So really doing consistent calls and also improving our scheduling practices is really where we see we're going to um, have improvements in that. And I know one of the trustees was asking me about open access the last time I was here. So Raphael actually uh, single-handedly implemented open access at the clinics he was overseeing in San Mateo County mm -hmm. and has already developed our roadmap for how we are going to achieve that in, in the next part of this fiscal year. Uh, it is going to be a little bit of a bumpy road because it does require you know, a lot of change for our patients, uh, but also our providers to relinquish a little bit of the control and schedule patients in a different manner than I think that they have for decades sometimes. So we you know, will need to be doing a lot of education and training and monitoring as we roll that plan out. My, you know, our goal is within six months to be there, at least for primary care, and that is what we think will have the biggest dent on these access metrics. Um, the third next available metrics, we are undertaking an entire scheduling standardization project for all specialties and all of primary care. We are starting with primary care such that we will have a single template um, for every specialty across the entire system, whether it's at Highland or our freestanding clinics. Um, we are finding that there is a lot of variation, um, both in the templates. We have over a thousand different templates and over 900 different activity types. In comparison, I think Raphael got San Mateo down to, how many templates did you guys have? So we started off with 80, got down to 13 functional, but templated to four. Wow. Mm -hmm. So we're at thousands. That's our goal. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, this probably is a harbinger of what we're going to encounter in the clinical standardization work across the organization, frankly. Um, and we're starting this because that is what's going to drive our access. That's what drives our third next available appointment. And there's a lot of waste in the system. The amount of sort of scheduling, customization, rescheduling that occurs is, is not helping our patients. It's also taking up a lot of human bandwidth. Just two questions. So, am I right on the chart? It's showing that we're at, you were, I guess that's for the month at 28 days, which is far below your target, which is good, right? Yes. So, that is um, correct. There's a few issues with the report because it's related to how far in advance the templates are open. It's, you know, so basically, if we haven't opened next month's templates, a lot of those resource codes, if all the activities are filled, fall off of the report, which is a Cerner Sorian issue that we can't. Okay. Get I remember you talking about that, I think. Yeah, so it, sometimes the report can be a little artificial because if all of your appointments are full, it doesn't really necessarily show up. 
Did I, mean, I say that right, Catherine? <laughs> could, I, mean, I know we're, we're always trying to rush, but could you elaborate more on the template thing, just so I like, break it down for With why are there a thousand and what it's going And what a template is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know what a template yes. is, but what, in your world. Um, so in the clinic world, a template is basically the clinic schedule. So if I am in my clinic seeing my patients, it is the scheduling system that says, this is Dr. Barbaria's template. Here, you know, her first patient appointment is at 820. The next one's at 840. It's a 20-minute appointment so that, you know, whenever a patient needs to see me, they go into the system, and that is what yeah. they schedule on. Um, I think there is definitely a science to templates. There's a lot of literature for how you should build templates. Uh, we probably haven't followed any of these rules to date is what I'm finding, and we have a lot of variations. So over the years, I think some of it has just been there There haven't been principles. There hasn't been a lot of governance. So people just kind of you know try to do their best but make up templates and say, oh, this isn't working. I don't have access. I'm going to go do the special activity type to give me more access. I'm going to build this special template, and that will help my access. So all of it, I think, comes from a good place. But in the template world, more complexity is always bad. Always, it actually, you know, counterintuitively limits access. And so, the more simple your templates, the more access your patients are going to have. And an example for that is, you know, our pediatrics clinic. They sometimes have poor access. They've created these special activity types for newborn patients. That so when a newborn, you know, baby is born, they got to get that patient into clinic, you know, within two days for a check. Um, and maybe that slot is at 2 p.m. What if a newborn patient can't make it at 2 p.m.? They can't go into that 8 a.m. slot because that's a regular you know, follow-up pediatric slot. So the more you sort of clamp down on these things, it actually doesn't give as much flexibility to our patients. Or for some of our specialty clinics, they've decided to see all their new patients on Tuesday afternoons. You know, and that's the only time of the week where if you're a new hemonc patient, you can be seen. And you know, what if you have dialysis or you can't come on Tuesday afternoons? You don't have a lot of choice and you know we see that and you guys see that in those access numbers when you're seeing the third next available appointment um, because it's so limited so in the redesign project we're really trying to you know create standard lengths so that every follow-up appointment is the same amount of time every new appointment is the same amount of time spreading out and distributing new and return patients that patients have choice of what time of day they want to come which day of the week they want to come in dream state which evening or weekend they want to come um, to be seen and really making it more simple that answer your question? Or yeah, so how long are, are you going to get us from 1,000 to 4? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> my, my question is going to be exactly the same yeah. thing. So how long did it take you to get down to the... We started at 80, which was way better. Three to four months to get work that out. You really had to understand operations and provider preferences, FTEs. Uh, during the same time, we also went into a care team, team-based model, uh, so population health management. We used our nurses for chronic disease management, so we didn't have to schedule blood pressure checks, diabetes checks with the provider. It was actually a nurse function role following policy procedure protocols. Uh, we used our MAs for outreach, for mammographies, colorectal cancer screening, so they didn't have to come to the office. Uh, we also implemented uh, telehealth. So the qu the question is, when you look at our system, yeah. can you give us much? an estimate? Is it two years? My is goal is July 2018. Three. I like that. Uh, we're doing small pilots before we go full focus, but July 2018 is our goal. Okay. And on this, on the side, I'm sorry. To me, one of the most concerning trends recently has been our volume in ambulatory. And you know, in a, in a few minutes, we're going to be talking about a major purchase, and it's based on EBITDA margins, and it's based on volume. And I'm I'm hoping that this is just, just totally linked to that, right? Absolutely. So the second we can clean up our templates, we will be improving our capacity. When I, you know, all of us on the team look at utilization reports for our volumes by clinic every single week. Um, and there is capacity there that we are not tapping into, and a lot of it is driven by our scheduling practices that if we schedule out you know, six months, a year, we know those patients are going to no-show because who remembers an appointment that was made a year ago? Um, and so the advanced access proposal will decrease our no-show rate, which will result in increased clinic visit volumes. And then sort of the complexity in the template means that we have numerous slots that are actually empty or not utilized, which you know, with the streamlined templates and streamlined scheduling protocols should absolutely mean that we are running at 100% or above capacity every day. That's great. By July 2018. We, we're going to get there. <laughs> we're going to put that date up on the wall there. <laughs> well, it's conveniently, you know, right around the end of the fiscal Just year. Just like your um, beginning of the fiscal year. So, 
it's coming. Peer, peer review. That's right. Peer review is coming. So, Paloma, is there anything else you wanted to hit or any other questions? Uh, I'll show a few more. I think we yeah. hit actually a lot of the access stuff. So, you know, just looking at the no-show rate, we um, only have trend data for two months on this dashboard, but they have consistently been getting better, and I think especially when we put in those steps towards advanced access, they, those will get much better. Specialties had more market improvements. Yeah. I, I wasn't certain uh, on the was it the robocall? What what is what constitutes the hangups? Is it yeah? So we have a vendor. Um, what is the name? Televox um, that does automated reminder calls to patients. A lot of our patients, you know, it's it's clearly a, a robot voice that's talking to you. So a lot of people hang up without I, I even listening the message. Yeah. Some people listen to it, um, but we found consistently, and we've done numerous pilots on this over the years, that human live reminder calls are much more effective at reminding patients to come. So in some clinics, we found, especially in specialty, they were not being done consistently. That due to staffing shortages, priorities, you know. They just didn't do them. and So they so weren't appointment calls. They were reminder calls. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, sorry, go ahead. This, the blue bars and the little red things at the top, that's, what, not this one. Um, on the, on the dashboard? Keep yeah. going down. Close and avoid yeah. Yes. What are those? Um, so as I put these slides in there because as we move to advanced access, the entire principle of it is that you don't give a patient a follow-up appointment you know, for four months from now, six months from now. They call us, and we all know that sometimes getting people on the phone can be challenging. So in ambulatory, we've been doing a lot of work to clean up our phone access, starting with the call center. Their abandoned call rate used to fluctuate between 30 and 50% in 2016. 30 and 50? 30 and 50% abandoned call rate. And as you will see... people hanging out. Before they talk people hang up, they're on the geo, they get tired of waiting, and they hang up. Um, you'll see from this dashboard, you know, for the last year, there were months where we got up to 19%, but the last few months, they've been consistently, you know, ideally less than 10%. Um, so this is huge, which means that when patients call, they're actually getting through, they're not waiting, you know, for ages. We still need to refine this a little bit to measure wait times um, in more real time and make improvements, but this is a vast improvement. That was going to be my next are. question, is what is the wait time for those abandoned calls? Yeah. You know, well, up your head. I know we can get some of that data. We only use a via telephone upgrade, I think, in the last six months, so we only have that data for a period of the time because the old telephone system couldn't measure it, but we can get that now. This is um, and then similarly, we've also been developing phone access at the clinic site. So that's at our centralized call center. But then there may be clinical needs that need to go straight to the clinic. So this shows um, we've done most of this work on K6 right now and then are in the process of spreading it, abandoned call uh, times and volume at those actual phone rooms that are in the clinic, uh, which also are, you know, a little bit worse in the call center, mostly due to staffing, so we're working on cleaning that up, but patients can actually get in, people are taking messages, they're having their needs met. Um, so I think we hit on most of this, we really, you know, want to accomplish those two things, this template standardization project and the advanced access implementation, because that will help us in numerous realms, not just in terms of access. And I think the other underpinning is, as Raphael mentioned, you know, this goes hand-in-hand hand with our move towards team-based care. Mm -hmm. And that is really where we're going to drive improvements in quality for all of our patient care, um, as well as provider satisfaction. It's interesting, you know, I reviewed the burnout survey results uh, for ambulatory that the MEC did, and actually two very over-eager medical students from UCSF who are helping me on a mini-project around that. So Jean Hearn and I are collaborating. And in the literature, you know, they really talk about you're going to want a center, you're going to have free massages for your providers, but the real cure for burnout is structural change. What can you do to change their day-to-day -day work and job yes. description to be sustainable? And on the ambulatory side, that is team-based care. You do not need a physician to fill out forms. You don't need a physician to order cancer screening. You don't need a physician to follow standard protocols to treat chronic disease. And yet, so much of that administrative burden falls on our providers. And so as we do this work, that's the next phase. So the next time we come here, we'll probably be presenting on our new kickoff for team-based care, which we'll be launching in January. Great. Thank you. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, both things. Um, with regard to, to the last thing, into provider satisfaction, et cetera, it, it, how are we moving um, in, in ambulatory care towards, towards um, virtual response towards email response or email access and 
Next. Yeah, so I think, you know, we are hoping to move towards telehealth, which Rafael also has slated for us to go live for telephone visits and responses by July 2018. So we're going to be having a very busy winter and spring next mm -hmm. year. We may all be on vacation for the month of August. I'm just warning this group. Um, <laughs> but in terms of the actual e-communication, you know, I think there's a lot of legal issues with using email because it's not a part of the medical record, et cetera. Um, so you really need a patient portal to do back and forth electronic communication, which we will get with Epic. So when we get Epic, absolutely, there is going to be an entire overhaul of our workflows in terms of the And do we have a when people call with regard to the calls from the call center, do we have a, um, access to a, a, a clinician? So when you call, Steve Kilgore's not allowed to work on that. I'll let him answer. Uh, yeah, during, during the day, we have um, nurses at each site, so they they know their population best and have relationships with their patients. And then in the evenings and weekends, we have on-call physicians who have a call service, and uh, if somebody wants to speak to a pediatrician or adult internal medicine or OBGYN, we have them on call. And Steve also did a lot of great work developing sort of very basic algorithms for our non-clinical staff, so eligibility clerks or other people who may be answering the phone to at least recognize, you know, what is an emergency where you immediately need to get a nurse or a provider, even if the patient doesn't necessarily identify a clinical need, and all of the staff have been trained on those protocols. Great. Thanks. Okay. Mr. Sorry. Oh, uh, Maria, first. Um, I just uh, am curious if next time, uh, we have a little bit more uh, focus on those last set of slides which look at um, the, um, what I would consider the public health, population health issues that we need to address. I'm really thankful that I'm seeing um, mammogram, cancer screening, uh, colorectal, uh, hypertension, and diabetes. If we all remember, um, those are those chronic or, or uh, conditions, not chronic, just conditions that uh, we really need to influence if we're going to make yes. the numbers that we suggest. And frankly, we must spend more time on understanding the trend lines that you have here. It looks good, but I'm just saying I'd love more time to review those. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, just, uh, uh, I would like you to just very briefly clarify to trustee degrees the volume issue in terms of the restructuring that you have been doing just in terms of the volume and the visits uh, that, that used to be not closed and the changes that you have made along the volume plus the implementation of next gen so the board will know. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, we've done deep root cause analyses for the volume deficits in every single area, and the causes are definitely multifactorial. So, as you know, we are rolling out NextGen to our specialties in current state, recognizing that they will have a new EHR in three years, but I will say that that experience has been invaluable because that is what is highlighting all of these deficiencies. So we are undergoing our own clinical standardization now, which I think will set up ambulatory much better for the next wave of the EHR. It's much easier to go from EHR to EHR than from paper onto one, as you know. Um, so some of the volume deficits are because when a clinic goes live on next gen, we cut down their templates for a period of time. We have strategies in place to make up that volume later. Um, and then in some of the areas we've had provider deficiencies. And then there's actually, you know, what is not reflected in the volume, I think, is improvements we've been making on revenue cycle. So in the paper world and with an ingenious med, um, there are numerous open encounters where, you know, documentation may be incomplete. We have no way of tracking if a resident sees a patient and just doesn't dictate the note. No one knows until we find that open encounter and we try to bill and there's no documentation from that visit. And especially in our surgical clinics, we were having thousands of encounters like that, which we really worked, you know, to clean up, but there's no tracking system, so you don't know what you don't know. And so that doesn't count, so that would, that would indicate a, a lower volume. It, the volume shows up because the patient was registered and was seen, but we don't get revenue for that visit. So there's the volume report and, and the revenue report. report. I mean, also important, but yeah, it's a huge problem fiscally, but, but not, not in and of itself a volume problem. Right, absolutely. Um, where they're tied is for surgery clinics, for example, you know, we knew that the residents were seeing you know, thousands of patients without supervision, so none of those visits were billable because an attending was not seeing them. We did a great corrective action plan with all of the surgeons who really, you know, banded together and came up with a restructuring proposal. So we actually decreased their number of patients scheduled on any given day. But now, you know, I think for months now, 
every single surgical patient is being seen by both an attending and a resident. And all of those visits are being documented and billed for. You know, which is, you know, none of that shows up on here, but it's a dramatic change than what was present before. And then as of last month, we built a new report out of NextGen that shows all of the missing documentation and charges. Uh, and there's a new ambulatory delinquent documentation suspension policy, which is going to be coming your way, I think, at the next board meeting, which is already passed by MEC, uh, but didn't get on today's I agenda, unfortunately. And so, you know, we are getting a weekly report now and sending it out to all the providers of all of their missing documentation so that from a compliance perspective, we can charge, we can complete the documentation. And we have a similar one for attending attestation because that's been another huge problem where we haven't, you know, we have all these training notes that are not co-signed, which from a medical legal perspective is a major problem as well as a quality perspective because we should be reviewing our resident notes and signing off on them. So that process has been launched. People are furiously signing and closing notes and encounters. Um, so again, on the revenue side, we should be seeing a huge impact from that. So I think we have to close this. Um, there is a, the a risk report on the agenda, but I think we did that. We did that, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, do we? Yes. Just one last item before you adjourn. I just want to thank you, Trustee Zofia. And this is the last time you chair this committee. I just want to have a shout to thank you. And uh, it's been a bit. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Um, Closed session report? Yes, yeah, so the uh, committee met in closed session approved credentialing reports from each of the medical staffs and took no other action. And is there any public comment requested? Okay, we are adjourned. Thank you. Thank you to the committee. Wow. Um, um,